the road to the resurrection, the road to the resurrection. And uh, what we're doing is we just decided to basically um, say, okay, we know Easter is a few weeks out. Let's, um, let's look at the resurrection story uh, of Jesus rising from the dead, conquering sin, but also conquering death. And let's go backwards through the story, and let's, uh, let's start a little earlier on. And so last week, Bob began this series called The Road to the Resurrection uh, by talking about Jesus being led to and then nailed upon the cross and, uh, and what he had to say and what he was doing um, as he was nailed to the cross. Today, I'm going to be looking really at just three verses, and, uh, and we'll be talking again a little bit more about one of the important narratives on the, our way to the resurrection. What's interesting about the resurrection is if you go to a famous um, you know, art museum in Florence, Italy, or in Washington, D.C., you'll see lots of artwork about the cross, and that is what we're talking about today. But there's not that much artwork about the resurrection. And what's interesting about that is without the resurrection, the cross is not particularly meaningful. It's just kind of sad, right? And yet today we are going to uh, talk about the cross, particularly on our way to the resurrection. Let's take a moment before we begin, and let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you that you did not leave us in darkness, uh, but that you gave your word to us as light. You also sent your son Jesus to us to be light, to illuminate um, not only who we are, but also to illuminate who you are. And so, Father, I pray that this morning as we um, read the story of your son upon the cross, that we would more clearly um, see who you are as our heavenly father and see who our son Jesus is, your son Jesus is, as our Savior. So, Father, I just pray again, as I always pray, that, um, that no one will be able to leave here this morning without having had an encounter with you. I pray that you would do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, I don't know if any of you guys have thought about this before. Maybe it's just my morbid brain, but I've thought before about my last words, right? Like, what might my last words be to family or friends or people around my bedside I do know this. I know in high school, um, I actually uh, wanted to sort of um, make sure I didn't start cussing. This is not a joke. This is actually real. Because I didn't want my last words to be something and then to appear before God in heaven. Does that make sense? Like, I wanted to clean up my mouth enough so that when my last words were going to be something noble and good, whether they were intentional when I was, you know, 97 years old on my deathbed or 17 years old in the car, I I wanted to, you know, make sure that my last words were, were clean and good and noble, right? So what are some famous last words? Um, I think um, that if I were to sort of poll people in the room, we might come up with a a similar list of final last words. I think maybe one of the more famous um, last words ever spoken were by this man up on the screen, Julius Caesar, who said what? A tu brute. Thank you so much, high school English teachers across America. We know that, all right? Yeah, Julius Caesar, famous last words. Uh, maybe some famous last words that I mean, aren't quite as famous, but they were funny, so I included, included them in my list. But up on the screen, I'm going to have a picture of a man, General John Sedgwick, who is a Union commander. Anybody know his last words? Okay, good, because this is going to be funny. He says this. He's speaking to some of the other soldiers with him, and he said, they were saying, hey, shouldn't you sort of move further back? And he said, oh, don't worry. They couldn't hit an elephant at this dist, at which point in time he was shot and killed. True story. True story. They couldn't hit an elephant at this. Anyway, it's true. All right. Elvis. Many of you know uh, about how Elvis died. I'm not going to go into that too much. But, but Elvis, to Ginger Alden, who was his fiance at the time, um, his final words before his death were, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Right? And then 
He passed away while in the bathroom. Levi's not in here this morning, but if he were, that would be for him. P.T. Barnum, right? Many of you guys are familiar with P.T. Barnum, circus, entertainer, et cetera, et cetera. P.T. Barnum was the guy that said, I don't care what they say about me, just to make sure they spell my name right, right? But P.T. Barnum, his final words were this. He said, how are the receipts today at Madison Square Garden, right? How are the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? Died, was just concerned about how much money they made that day. Uh, Nostradamus, some of you guys know that Nostradamus was this, um, this guy who, you know, claimed to be able to foretell the future, right? Had all these amazing predictions that are somewhat nebulous and so, somewhat ethereal. And so you read them and you're saying, you know, was he talking about World War II? Was he talking about Hitler? Was it this? Was it that? Well, Nostradamus's last words were, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here, right? He may not have actually been able to tell the future, but he knew that he was going to die. That was his last night. Oscar Wilde, some of you guys are familiar with Oscar Wilde and his wild life. Oscar Wilde's famous last words were, either that wallpaper goes or I do. So that was kind of funny. Um, actually, I read a little bit about that story, and it was very interesting because in, in sort of his final days, he, he literally kept talking about this horrible wallpaper that was in the room where he was dying away, and that was his famous last words. Uh, Elizabeth uh, I, Queen of England, on a more serious note, said, all of my possessions for a moment of time. All of my possessions for a moment of time. In other words, on your deathbed, all those possessions are worth nothing. You'd give them all for a moment of time. Henry Ward Beecher, his final last words. Now comes the mystery. Now comes the mystery. And then finally, Leonardo da Vinci, arguably one of the, the, the best and most famous artists in human history, says this. He says, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Let me say that one more time. I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. In other words, there was this standard, and I still couldn't measure up to what that standard was. And I'm acutely aware of my failure to measure up to that standard, not only to God, but to my fellow man. Famous last words. It'd be interesting to know what Jesus' last words were. That would probably be pretty important. That'd probably be good to know. You would think that Jesus' last words would be filled with intention and filled with depth. The good news is we don't have to guess at what his last words. We actually have his last words recorded here in John chapter 19. We know that John was standing at the foot of the cross um, when Jesus died. So today we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 30 of John chapter 19, and we're going to see Jesus' last words. John 19 verse 28 begins by saying this, after this, after this or uh after this, why are these verses different? Yeah. Um, so, okay, just let's just move along from this. Okay, boom. Let's get, get rid of that. Thank you. Anyway, so after this, says this, after this, after, in other words, after Jesus had spoken, uh, Bob talked about this last week, after Jesus had spoken to John and his mother Mary and Mary Magdalene at the foot of the cross, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst, right? He, he was arrested, you know, 18, 24 hours um, earlier. Probably hasn't had anything to drink. He's had blood loss. He's been beaten. He's been punched. Um, he's, he's been through all of this and, and has had nothing to drink. He says, I'm thirst. It's possible that when he says, I thirst, that his statement of I thirst is more than just physical thirst. Um, it might be that he's, um, he's feeling the weight of the wrath of God falling 
upon them. It's also a reference to Psalm 69. Uh, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And again, the sour wine that they would have offered to Jesus would have been the cheap stuff, right? It would have been not the good stuff. It would have been the, the Behringer, right? It would have been the Reuniti. It would have been the cheap stuff. They would have put it on a hyssop branch, which was basically the stalk of this plant that had a feathery ending. They would have dipped it in to this cheap sour wine and held it up to Jesus, right? That mention of the hyssop branch also is very intentionally to remind us of the Passover. And that's actually part of what we're going to see this week and next week is that this passage of Scripture is, uh, is really all about how Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the eternal Passover lamb. And so there's references to all these things that would have made the Jewish audiences really stand up and recognize that John was saying Jesus truly was the Passover lamb, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. It's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world that John the Baptist introduced his disciples to early on in the book of John. And then verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Those are Jesus' last words. It is finished. Not I'm finished, but it is finished. So what did Jesus' last words reveal to us? When Jesus said it is finished, he was saying that he had done it, right, perfectly, that his mission was complete. In fact, that word, it is finished, it's actually one word that's translated it is finished, is a Greek word, tetelestai, tetelestai. And it really does mean it is finished or it is paid in full. In fact, um, in um, ancient, the ancient Near Eastern culture in ancient Greece, when someone had um, a bill that they had to pay, uh, there would literally be a stamp that would be stamped upon the top of that bill and it would be tetelestai, paid in full. So when you finish paying your mortgage, paid in full, right? When you bought the refrigerator on credit at Lowe's, Tetelestai would be stamped across the top, paid in full. It means that an assignment was completed. It means that it was done. It means that nothing else is required. Nothing else was due to be paid. It means that Jesus on the cross, when he uttered that word Tetelestai, what he was saying is, is that he had completely and perfectly done what he had come to do. He had perfectly and completely done what God had asked him to do, what his heavenly father had asked him to do. The question is, what did Jesus come to do? What did he finish perfectly? As I read through um, the answers to that question and read through the New Testament scriptures in particular, I found that there were probably over 20 different places where Jesus said, I came to do this, I came to do this, I came to do that, I came to do these things, my father sent me to do this. And so there are any number of different things that Jesus came to do. I'm going to talk about four of them today that I think are particularly important um, and germane to those of us in this room. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Listen to the words of 19, Luke chapter 19, verses 9 through 10. Now again, this is a story, um, an interaction that we have where Jesus is interacting with a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Tax collectors were hated by the Jews. He was also a Jewish tax collector. It meant he was working with the enemy, the Romans. Tax collectors very frequently skimmed money off the top. They, they frequently extorted people. And so the, the Jewish people would have hated him. He would have been seen as an enemy. He would have been seen as a total and complete sinner. And yet Jesus, as he's making his way through this town near Jericho, looks up in the tree and sees 
Zacchaeus, for those of you who know the story. And Jesus says, um, today, I need to come to your house. I, I'm here for you. He says that to Zacchaeus, right? And so the, the word here, the, the, the verse or verses are this. Today, salvation has come to this house. That is, Jesus is saying, I came to seek and save the lost to bring salvation to Zacchaeus, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, part of my mission that I came to complete is I came to seek and to save the lost. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus making the same statement that what he came to do was to, to find people who are lost, to find people who have wandered away from him, to find people who are wandering in darkness and don't know him, and to seek them out and to save them, right? We see this in the parable of the lost sheep. When the Pharisees are struggling to understand who Jesus is and why he's living the way that he's living, Jesus tells this parable or a story with an intended point. And the parable that he tells is the parable of the lost sheep. And he says this, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. In that day, uh, the tax collectors and sinners were sort of this, this one sort of macro sort of statement for all of the people who were the furthest away from God. These are the worst people in that culture at that time. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Other places this is translated, he, you know, Jesus is eating and drinking and spending time with all these people who were the moral outcasts of that day and age, and the Pharisees didn't know what to do with him, right? In other words, what they were sort of saying is, well, aren't you supposed to come and to receive the good people? Like, aren't you supposed to be here for the people who are checking off the boxes, who are believing the right things in terms of theology, and who are practicing the right things in terms of morality? Aren't you supposed to be here for them? And Jesus says exactly the opposite. He says, I'm, again, I'm here to seek and to save the lost. Verse 3 says, so he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. In other words, not only have I come to seek and save the lost, but when I do find those people who are lost, I throw them upon myself and I rejoice in the same way that you would rejoice if you had a lost sheep or in the same way that you would rejoice if you had a lost son, right? So Jesus came to seek and to save these lost people. We see it in the story of Levi, the tax collector. Again, Jesus looks for and finds this lost person. The woman at the well with her multiple husbands and the man that she's now living with, Jesus is looking to find her. He's seeking to save her. The demon-possessed man, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, even Paul, all of these people were lost people. Jesus came for lost people, right? Jesus came for people that were far away from him. Now, let me say this really quickly. Some of you in this room this morning, you can remember when you were lost and when Jesus found you, right? You can remember when that happened, when the light came on, when all of a sudden you realized that you had been um, following your own ways, that you had turned your back upon him, and that ultimately you were becoming less and less human, and Jesus found you and he rescued you. Jesus came for you. Some of you in the room this morning would say, that you're lost and you know it, right? Some of you in this room this morning are terrified, you're anxious, you're distraught. That prayer of despair for you is pretty easy. All that stuff is real close 
to the surface. And all I can tell you this morning is that Jesus came for people who are lost. He has a heart for people who are far away from him. That is good news, right? It's good news to know that your heavenly father is just that, a heavenly father who desires to seek and to save his wandering children, right? God wants to bring you back into a relationship with him, and Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's one of the things he came to do. What else did Jesus come to do? Jesus not only came to seek and to save the lost, but he also came to call broken people into a relationship with his father. These are very similar points, but I think they bear uh, repeating. Mark 2.17 says this, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came to call, uh, not to call the righteous, but sinners, right? And again, this is the same discussion that's going on with the religious people. It's the same discussion that's going on with the moral people, and they're confused, and they're kind of angry with Jesus, and Jesus, again, is saying the same thing. He's basically saying, I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call people who are sinners and know it, right? I came to call those people into a relationship with my father. In the same way that he told a parable of lost sheep, he tells a parable of a lost son, right? And basically, he tells the story of what we know as the prodigal son in order to say, you think my father is this, but I'm here to tell you my father is actually like this, right? And the story, as you well know, at least the first half of the story goes like this, that there's this young son, and this younger son, who's pictured as the smaller um, uh, image here on the screen, this young son basically looks at his father and says, I don't want to have anything to do with him, but I want what he's got. And so this young son goes to his father and says, please give me my inheritance now. In other words, um, I don't really care anything about you, but I want what you've got to offer. And it says this young son takes his inheritance and he goes away and he wastes his money on wild living and mayhem and, uh, and he squanders it all. And at some point in time, he becomes less and less and less human, and he's aware that he's less human. In fact, he's become so less human that he's starving, and he's basically taken this job where he feeds pigs. And it says that he is uh, feeding these pigs, the pods and all this leftover stuff that he would only feed to pigs. And he awakens for a moment, and he says, the servants in my house are taken better care of than I am right now. And he decides to go home. But he basically get, decides to go home, and he says, I'm gonna ask my dad to receive me back, not as a son, but as a servant, I'm going to basically say, please just let me just work for you, right? And so this young son who is now, you know, barely clothed any longer, who's covered with the slop of these pigs, and not only that, but covered with the recklessness of his sinful life, he begins to make his way back to his father. And of course, the audience that Jesus is telling the story to, they would have thought, and when he gets back and his father sees him, his father is going to crush him. His father's going to let the hammer fall. His father's going to punish him. His father's going to say, how could you do that? His father's going to read him the riot act. And of course, that's what the Pharisees would have been expecting to hear. But instead, in Jesus' story, the father does exactly the opposite. Jesus basically says, my heavenly father is like this father who's been pacing back and forth in front of the door of his tent, looking out on the road, longing for his son to come home. And it says that when this father again in the story representing our heavenly father, when this father sees his younger son half naked, half starved, squandering, having squandered all this wealth, this father isn't filled with anger, but is instead filled with compassion. And this father hikes up his robes, which men in that culture wouldn't have done, and he runs down the front hill onto the road 
and he greets his son, and he throws his arms around the son, as you see in this picture. And he says to his servants, he says, well, first the son starts to give his speech about why his dad should let him come back and be a servant. And the dad basically says, cuts him off. I won't hear it. You, there's, nothing to be, there's nothing to repay. There's nothing for you to do. This is only a moment for my mercy and my grace. And so the father, again, cuts the son off. And he says to the servants, he says, bring the shoes um, for my son's feet because my son is barefoot. And shoes would have been a symbol that his son wasn't a servant, but was rather a member of the household. And not only that, the father says, and, uh, and bring the ring and place it upon his hand, right? Bring the ring that demonstrates that he is my son, that he's a member of my household. And not only that, he says, but bring the best robe and cover over his nakedness, right? Part of what this father is doing is saying, I'll cover your shame, all of your rebellion, all of your sin, all of your brokenness, all of that, I will cover it all at my expense, tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. And Jesus is telling this story to his audience, to these Pharisees, right? But he's also telling it to the tax, tax collectors and sinners in order to say, this is my father. This is, the, this is my father. He wants to draw you into a relationship with him, right? The reason we need to hear this is because we believe that God is angry. We believe that he's a judge. We believe that he is this old, grizzled man sitting on a throne with a hammer waiting to crush us, just waiting for us to slip up so he can drop the hammer. And Jesus goes, that's not my father at all. My father is like this. He's like this father who runs to meet his sinful children. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I wanna call you sinners, rebels, younger siblings. I wanna call you into a relationship with this father. This is my father. It's what I came to do, to call you into a relationship with him. Some of you in the room this morning think that there's no way God could love you. There's no way God could accept you. There's no way God could use you because you're damaged goods, right? Because in high school, because in college, right? Because before you became a Christian, there's no way God could use you because of all those things. Or some of you, who grew up as Christians in high school and college, and you've got your own list of things that you did, and you think, well, there's no way God could love me. There's no way, there's no way that God could run to meet me, right? There's no way that God could throw his, his best robe around me, and yet that's exactly what Jesus says that his Father longs to do for sinners, for rebels, for broken people like you and like me. It's good news to tell us that. It is finished, paid in full. Jesus came not only to call or to seek and to save the lost, but he call, came to call broken people into a relationship with his Father. Jesus also came to invite us and to offer us into a, a, a life of light and, and a life that's really, truly life. Listen to words, the words of John chapter 12 and John chapter 10. Jesus says this, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness right? I've come as light to call people into a relationship with me so that you don't have to live in darkness anymore. Some of you, you know what that means. Some of you know that darkness intimately, right? Some of you are in that darkness now. Somebody, some of you remember that darkness. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, to make you less human. I have come that they, you in this room this morning, may have life 
and have it abundantly. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is I've come to call you into light and I've come to call you into that life that is truly life, right? Where do we see that in scripture? I think one of the clearest places we see it and we see it all over the place is in the story of the Gerasene demoniac. Some of you guys are familiar with the story from Luke chapter eight. It's recorded in other passages as well. But uh, this is a story where Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And when they land on the, sh- the shore of this area, um, there's this demon-possessed man who lives in the tombs, right? And he lives in the tombs and he's naked, right? And he's filthy and he's scary and he's demon-possessed, right? And it says that the people of the town had tried to chain him up in the past But in his um, insane strength, he's broken these chains. And not only that, but he cuts himself among the graves and he screams out day and night. I've got a piece of artwork that demonstrates what this man may have looked like. This guy was about as scary as it gets. And Jesus runs into this man when he lands on the shore. This man is living in darkness among the tombs. And it says that Jesus cast the demons out of this man. And then in verse 35 of Luke chapter uh, eight, we're told this. It says the people of the town who, who heard that Jesus had, had, had healed this man who had uh, cast these demons out of him. It says the people of the town came to see it because they knew who this guy was. And it says the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found this man, the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, right? All of a sudden, this man who had been living in darkness had stepped into the light, right? This man who had no life at all, but this horrible death living among the tombs. And here he is sitting clothed and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. Jesus came to call us into light and into life. Again, some of you remember that darkness. Some of you remember the darkness that you experienced in college. Some of you remember the darkness you experienced early in your marriage. Some of you are living in darkness now and you think there's no hope, you think there's no light. Some of you remember living that life of emptiness and death and some of you still are living that life of emptiness and death. And all I can tell you is that Jesus offers light, right? He offers light, he offers life, right? For you, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save the lost, it's all of us in this room. He came to call sinners into a relationship with his father. That's all of us in this room. And he came to call us into life and to a light that only he can offer. To tell us that it is finished. I did it. Mission accomplished. The last thing that we see that Jesus came to do is that Jesus came to do everything that was required to make us right with his heavenly father, with God. I'm gonna read a section of verses. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter 20 says this, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the ransom has been paid. That which was necessary to set you free, it's been paid. Now the importance of this word to die here is, it means that you don't owe anything else. You don't owe God anything else to tell us die it is finished paid in full jesus paid it all verse 17 of matthew chapter 5 do not think that i've come to abolish the law or the prophets i've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them right 
In other words, for those of us in this room who think, well, I've got to be good enough. I've got to obey what I know to be true. I've got to obey not only the stuff in Scripture, but the moral law. I've got to be perfectly obedient. But Jesus comes along and he says, to Telestai, I have been perfectly obedient. Your obedience has been paid in full. No more obedience is required. You can't, you don't need to add to my perfect record. Paid in full, to Telestai. It is finished. Again, you don't owe God anything else. You, you, in fact, it would be offensive for you to try to pay God anything else because Jesus is saying here, I've done it. It is finished. 1 John 4.10. 1 John 4.10 says this, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Jesus is saying the sacrifice The once and for all sacrifice, the final sacrifice has been made. No more sacrifices are required. You can't. You don't need to sacrifice anymore for God to love you, to forgive you. It is finished. Tetelestai, right? Paid in full. What Jesus is proclaiming from the cross, what his last words are telling us in this room this morning is he's basically saying, you don't owe God anything else. And not only do you not owe God anything else, it would be offensive for you to try to pay anything else because Jesus has paid it all. He has done it all. It is finished. Nothing else is required for you to be made right with God except for one thing. And that one thing is simply that you would trust in Jesus alone as your savior, right? As your hero. That's, that's all that's required. And so all of a sudden, obedience is an act of gratitude, right? Any sacrifice you make isn't trying to earn God's love or pay down a debt, but rather is simply a way in which you live because you're aware of the sacrifice that God made for you and his son, Jesus. Nothing else is required. It is finished. Why is it so important for you to hear the words of Jesus today, to Telestai, to Telestai, to Telestai, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. The reason it's so important that you hear that today is because I promise you don't believe it. You just don't. I don't believe it, and I'm a pastor, right? Our default mode, your default mode, my default mode is to believe that you owe God more and more and more with each passing day, right? You need to hear Jesus say, it is finished. You need to hear Jesus say, to tell us die because you think you owe God more obedience, You think you owe God more sacrifice to offset your sins, your doubts, and your failures, and you need to hear Jesus say, it is finished. It's done. It's paid in full. The gospel is always good news. It is never good advice, and this is good news. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the final words of Jesus as he proclaims to Telestai that it is finished, that it is paid in full. And Father, um, when we're tempted later today, and when we're tempted tomorrow, and we're tempted this week, um, to not believe that Jesus did indeed pay it all, that we would hear Jesus' words echo in our heads, that it is finished, that it is paid in full. And Father, I pray that the voice of your son Jesus proclaiming it is finished would be louder than the voices that are within us, 
Uh, I pray, Father, that as we hear the word tetelestai, that as we hear the proclamation that it is finished, that Jesus' voice in our ears would be louder than the voices of culture um, or the voices of our parents, Father, or the voices of those people that, that come into contact with us to whom we don't measure up to their standards, that we would hear that the most important thing is that we indeed measure up to your standard, not because of any goodness or righteousness in us, but because Jesus did it all, because Jesus finished it all. And so, Father, I pray that we would indeed trust in you and in your Son, Jesus, who proclaimed to us that it is finished. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.